Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About Prisons. Since the later 1970s, the number of people in prison has increased in nearly all Western countries. In the last five to ten years, the pace of this increase has dramatically accelerated. Both Russia and the United States, for example, have nearly doubled their rate of imprisonment since the later 1980s. Canada's federal penitentiaries are overcrowded after a surge in our prison numbers during the 1990s. What this increase means and what can be done about it are the subject of this special 10-hour ideas series by David Cayley on prison and its alternatives. Tonight's programme begins with a look at how pessimism about reform came to dominate academic criminology during the 1980s. It continues with an examination of the case of Finland, which has kept its prison numbers falling while they've been rising everywhere else. And it concludes with a suggestion from a former head of the Correctional Service of Canada that Canada could and should substantially reduce the number of people we imprison. Prison and its Alternatives, Part 3, by David Cayley. In 1992... Canadian criminologist Maeve McMahon published a book called The Persistent Prison. The title was expressed as a question. The sense of the question was, are alternatives to imprisonment possible, or is the institution too powerful, too ingrained in the social imagination, and too necessary to society as it is ever to be effectively reformed? In the book, McMahon argued that imprisonment could be reduced but she also chided her academic colleagues for their lack of faith in this possibility. During the 1980s, she said, they had succumbed to a mood of deep theoretical pessimism, and as a consequence, the critical voice of criminology had been largely silenced in public debate. How this happened, in McMahon's view, is the classic case of a welcome revolution becoming, in time, a paralyzing orthodoxy. She traces the story back to the 1960s and the emergence of what she calls critical criminology. Before that, many criminologists had tended to take the language and the institutions of crime control as givens. One assumed the existence of crime and inquired about the criminal character, or one assumed the existence of prisons and asked about how they work. In the 1960s, an intellectual movement arose to challenge this view, where many researchers previously would have taken the notion of crime for granted. During the 1960s, there was a whole academic literature that was beginning to question what is crime itself and say that, well, maybe isn't crime itself a socially constructed phenomenon? What is defined as crime in one society might not be defined as crime in another. What is defined as crime in one period of time might not be defined as crime in another. So you also find researchers beginning to look at how the system itself could, so to speak, construct crime. So they, they looked, for example, at how some people might get in trouble with the law initially because of being in the wrong peer group or because of poverty or whatever initial reason they came up with. But they began to look at how the very process of labelling somebody as a criminal contributed to that person's own deviant self-image. They began to look at how putting somebody through the court process or how putting somebody through juvenile institutions for offenders or through prisons could help that person themselves take on a deviant identity 
and how it also gave them a deviant identity that then when they came out of those processes, the police, for example, would be aware of, so that a self-perpetuating circle was set in motion, where that once somebody got caught up in the system, even though the system might actually be trying to assist them, for example, through rehabilitation, that maybe the system itself was contributing to the problem of crime. So all of these developments began to pave the way for a more critical analysis of crime. And in the late 60s and early 70s, you find a new, we can say nearly school of of critical criminology emerging that begins to take all of these issues on board and to try and move analysis of crime and criminal justice to a more sophisticated level and to look at how society in general begins to select out certain groups, certain vulnerable people, and that these are the people who get likely to get processed through the system, while meanwhile uh, other more powerful groups were able to engage in, for example, white-collar crime, corporate crime, and get away with it. The question, who are the real criminals, was reinforced by contemporaneous events. The war in Vietnam liberation movements throughout the world, and in the early 70s, prison riots. In Canada, at the Kingston Penitentiary, and in the U.S., at Attica Prison, where 41 people died when the governor of New York ordered the prison retaken from the prisoners who had seized it. Such events contributed to a sense of prisons as instruments of oppression and engendered skepticism about their capacity to rehabilitate prisoners. This skepticism coalesced around an article published in the journal The Public Interest in 1975 by American researcher Robert Martinson. It was called What Works? Questions and Answers About Prison Reform. Martinson and his colleagues surveyed more than 200 studies carried out between 1945 and 1967 and concluded that with few exceptions, Efforts at rehabilitation had no effect on the rate at which ex-convicts reoffended. The 1950s and 1960s had seen the entrenchment of rehabilitation approaches in principle within the correctional system in the United States as in various other Western countries. There were efforts to hire more psychologists, counsellors, therapists and so on within the prison system and there had been research going on. Now, the research had fairly consistently shown that what you did with respect to programmes, whether you put somebody in five programmes and somebody else in one, whether you um, put somebody on probation or put them in prison, it didn't really seem to make a lot of difference to the recidivism rate or the rate of reoffending. But where prior to Martinson, people usually use those findings within social science as an argument to do more rehabilitation or try new forms of rehabilitation, Martinson reviewed hundreds of studies that were done before him and said, well, maybe the whole notion of rehabilitation itself should be questioned. Maybe this model itself is problematic. It was at this moment of doubt about rehabilitation, scepticism about crime, and suspicion of the state that French historian and social critic Michel Foucault published the book that would give critical criminology its focus. Its English translation was called Discipline and Punish, the birth of the prison. The book contrasted two types of punishment, the practice of public torture and public execution in old Europe, where the power of the sovereign was displayed on the offender's body, and the more diffuse but more total discipline of the modern prison, where the offender's soul is the target, 
Before the prison, Foucault said, a vivid demonstration of consequences was punishment's only purpose. The modern ideal of punishment as correction was, in his words, an interrogation without end, a file that was never closed, a calculated leniency interlaced with ruthless curiosity. Discipline and punish, according to one criminologist, reinvented the field of penology. Maeve McMahon also credits the book with having opened new perspectives in criminology, but says that its vision of an ever-expanding, all-encompassing penal power eventually swallowed any hope of reform. When critical criminologists in the 1980s looked at the exercise of power and saw the development of new forms of power, they always saw its consequences as negative. So to give an example, in the late 1970s, we saw the emergence of many new forms of community corrections. And these were originally described as alternatives to prison. And what you find is that as critical criminologists took Foucauldian analysis on board, they started to argue that even though new community programmes such as probation, community service orders, halfway houses, even though these might strike us as benign endeavours within corrections, they also have a sinister or dark side. And they further argued that these community programmes were not real alternatives to prison, that the use of imprisonment continued as before, and that meanwhile the use of these community programmes expanded and that they were used, to, in a sense, to control new people, people who wouldn't have gone to prison in the first place. So here was a decarceration argument, that was what the context it fell into, where people used a Foucauldian analysis to say that recent reforms in developing alternatives to prison have merely yielded wider, stronger and different nets of social control through the development of community programmes. This understanding, in Maeve McMahon's view, eventually forced the new critical criminology into the stance that one criminologist, Roger Matthews, called impossibilism. Despair about the offender was replaced by despair about the system. One of the ironies that I see in all of this is that where people who were following a positivist approach, an approach which looks for the individual and social causes of crime, had in the mid-70s more or less come to the conclusion associated with Martinson that nothing works in reforming the individual offender. So they basically came to the conclusion at that moment that no matter what we do, we can't rehabilitate the offender. About 10 years later, critical criminologists had come to a parallel conclusion that no matter what we do, we don't seem to be able to meaningfully reform the system. So I see this as quite ironic, that where critical criminologists were trying to, including myself, I have to say in all of this, where we were trying to supersede what we saw as the limitations of previous approaches, in some ways our logic reproduced them. So where other people said, oh no, you can't reform the offender, we, taking on board Foucault, said, oh no, you can't reform the system. So all kinds of people with different approaches to criminology ended up in their own impasses for a while. It was from one such impasse that Maeve McMahon began to do research on rates of imprisonment in Ontario between the 1950s and the 1980s, the work that was eventually published as The Persistent Prison. She was then at the Institute of Criminology at the University of Toronto. 
Her results contradicted the prevailing orthodoxy in ways that initially surprised her as much as they surprised her colleagues. Other authors, my supervisor Richard Erickson and Janet Chan, who'd also worked at, had been a student and worked, graduate student and worked at the Centre of Criminology, had written a monograph, um, Decarceration and the Economy of Penal Reform, where they basically argued that in Ontario and in Canada more generally, that the development of community programmes in the recent period had not reduced the use of imprisonment. So they were making an argument that was now becoming common, that alternatives to prison weren't really alternatives and just served to widen the net of control. When I initiated my research, the original plan was that I would document this in even greater detail. So in other words, I accepted their argument and thought that my research would extend their argument. And when I initiated the research, I really thought, well, I'll just quickly gather together the data that document this net widening. In other words, that show the continuance and increase of imprisonment and at the same time the escalation in the use of community programmes. I thought I'll quickly gather that data. And then what I really want to do is go and talk to the policymakers and see how did this actually happen? What were the dynamics of this? So that was my original idea. To cut a very long story, very, very short, gathering the data was not a rapid process. It took several years because the data on corrections are a lot more complex than one might think. And the data, especially on sentencing in Canada, are a lot more complicated than one might think. So it actually took me several years to even meaningfully gather the data I needed, or as much of it as I could get. And once I put all of that data together and looked at the trends, where I'd expected to see a rising rate of imprisonment from the 1950s, or at least a stable rate of imprisonment, I was initially shocked to discover that, in fact, a substantial reduction in the rate of imprisonment had taken place. So by 1984, we had about at least a third less people in prison in Ontario than had been the case in the 1950s when you standardised that data according to population. Maeve McMahon was eventually able to point to flaws in a number of studies from both Canada and Europe which had claimed to show that alternatives invariably expand rather than diminish the impact of criminal justice. She did not claim that net widening never occurred, but she did say that it was not inevitable and that a substantial reduction in the numbers in prison in Ontario was related to the use of alternatives. Her findings were not initially all that welcome to some of her colleagues. When I started to present this data, I got some very interesting reactions. The first time I presented the data was about 1985 or 1986 at a conference in Montreal. And I got up and I made my presentation. I was still in the midst of some of this research, so it wasn't a very polished presentation, I have to say that. But I did get up and, and basically produce my data and say, contrary to popular belief, the rate of imprisonment in Ontario now, proportionate to population, is far lower than it was 30 years ago. And I was trying to make my presentation and basically what happened was I wasn't able to finish that presentation because some of the other criminologists at that conference were so outraged at that time that I would even try and claim that prison population had decreased. So I think that's one sign of how much certain notions have become assumptions rather than conclusions. 
it has changed since then. I think it's, people have been become more aware that decarceration can take place. But around the time of the mid-80s, it was assumed that prison population is growing, it has been growing, and it will keep growing. Maeve McMahon believes that this assumption that things must get worse eventually brought critical criminology to a dead end. In her view, it silenced the public voice of criminology at exactly the moment when it ought to have been raised against what she calls the deafening chorus of those favoring repressive responses to crime. Instead, the view on the left that alternatives to imprisonment were only more of the same dovetailed with a renewed demand for more and longer terms of imprisonment on the right. And without any widespread conviction that a change for the better would be possible, she says, people in corrections have tended to settle for simply managing their problems. One tries to look at recent history and one can try and describe it and one can maybe be too simplistic as I've sounded. But I think that one of the dominant tendencies recently is that of a a managerial approach to the whole problem of crime. So where 20 or 30 years ago, maybe people were a little bit naive in thinking crime's a problem and we can do something about it. Maybe they were a bit naive in thinking of just how much they could do about it. We've now kind of swung into another age where it's as if at a certain level we're not even really going to try and do something about it. We're just going to manage that problem. So I think we see this, for example, in the construction of... um, even in buildings where we place mirrors so you can see if somebody's coming around the corner or how we light up car parks. Now, these are good things. We want bright car parks. We want to be able to see where we're going and who's coming. But I think it also reflects an assumption that this is going to happen and that there's nothing that we can do about it. Then when it comes to punishment, there's also a managerial approach. So we see electronic monitoring, for example. This is a way we're not really going to bother trying to accommodate this person We're not going to try and work closely with this person. We're just going to manage him or her. And if they go where they're not supposed to be, we pop them back in jail. So we put this managerial device onto them and let them go off. The same way within prisons, particularly in the United States, a lot of the emphasis on rehabilitation has been removed. And we basically just have uh, holding institutions. Just let people stay there. We won't try and help them so much. We'll just try and basically manage the problem as best we can. So along with that, it means that we've left behind a more ethical approach or a more moral approach or a more humanistic approach. So what I personally would like to see is a a revival of at least a humanistic kind of questioning. Who are the people going to prison? Why are they going? What's actually happening to them? And not just for people going to prison, but for criminal justice in general. Who are the people who are victims? Why are they upset? I mean, we can answer some of these questions immediately, but I think that they're often answered in too simplistic a way and that this leads to a lot of contradictions. So I think that we should take a more complicated look. We should look, for example, more at why are the police so ambivalent about domestic disputes? Why are they so reluctant to go there? Like, on the one hand, we can say, let's throw men who abuse their wives into prison I think we should look at the more complicated reality and say not all women in those problematic relationships want their husbands in prison. So we've even had ridiculous situations in Canada of a woman being jailed for contempt of court for refusing to testify against her husband. So I think that we should look at some of the complexities of these relationships in a very human way 
both for victims and for offenders and to try and get back into the difficulties of these questions rather than coming up with simple answers like stop parole, just put them in prison or electronically, monitor people or give victims money. I prefer like complex answers to complex questions. Simplistic managerial responses to crime have thrived, in Maeve McMahon's view, because they have not been subject to sustained critical public challenge. The reasons for this go back to her analysis of the malaise of critical criminology. Critical criminology, she says, has to move past what she calls the stance of suspicion and on to new political horizons. Her own analysis of the successes and failures, strengths and weaknesses of decarceration in Ontario points a possible way. In Ontario, according to Maeve McMahon's research, prison admissions declined by about 30% between the 1950s and the 1980s. The trend in many places today is clearly in the opposite direction. But there have been interesting exceptions which support her argument that decarceration is possible. During the mid-1980s, the rate of imprisonment in what was then West Germany dropped by about 20% an expression of what one German criminologist has called a crisis of conscience among German justice professionals about the value of imprisonment. In Great Britain, during the late 80s, the Home Secretary, Douglas Hurd, inspired a 13% reduction in the rate of imprisonment when he asked whether prisons weren't, in his words, an expensive way of making bad people worse. In both these cases, prison numbers eventually turned up again, But there has been one country in Europe where prison rates have continued to fall for many years, and that's Finland. Koyi Lang has been Finland's Director General of Prisons since 1970. He describes what his country has accomplished as a civilizing of the administration of justice. And he says that this policy was inspired in the first place by the widely shared experience of imprisonment that had resulted from the country's wars, first civil war, and then wars with both Russia and Germany during the World War II period. When we tried to civilize ourselves after the war, it was easy to argue about humanizing the the, the criminal justice system because we had so many prisoners, and we we had seen so many prisoners, for instance, after the Civil War 1918, we had close to 80 thousand people in, 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 in concentration camps. So we had, we had so heavy experiences of what kind of suffering you can have in, 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 through the control system that it was easy for us to, to, to argue through, through the years 50, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s to argue for, for a, a more relaxed way of controlling people and to catch up the level, for instance, of Sweden Sweden was some kind of an ideal heaven to, to stay for, for us to go to. And now, when Sweden is going the other way and following the Thatcherite and civility, we still are with the old ideology, which is very interesting. Finland's rate of imprisonment, once so high, today stands in the lowest rank of the industrialized countries. 
along with the Netherlands and the other Scandinavian states. And unlike these others, which have been inching up, Finland's decline continues. In sustaining it, Koyi Lang thinks, his country has enjoyed two great advantages. First of all, we haven't had any criminal policy lobbyists in, in the parliament or in the political sphere. And the media has been very, very calm. The crime issue has never been a big issue in Finnish politics or in, in Finnish media. In most Gallops today, you, you can find that more than 50% of the population in, in many countries say that the biggest problems are, is, is crime or crime and drugs. When we had that kind of gallop for a report made by the government to the parliament, crime come through with one person as, as the first issue and the, fir- the biggest problem in our society. Only one percent of the population believed in, in, in that this is the big one. So we have been very happy. We haven't worked under a pressure from the public or from, from the parliament to answer to these demands coming from of, uh, often very right-wing law and order politicians and law and order journalists too. Without pressure from the press, the public or the politicians, Koyi Lang and his colleagues in the other branches of criminal justice have been able to follow a consistent policy of reducing imprisonment. One of the ways in which they have done this is by nearly eliminating the jailing of juveniles. Rates of recidivism everywhere testify to the fact that those who go to prison will often go more than once. It follows, says Koyi Lang, that one can cut prison numbers by delaying that first visit. The biggest problem, I think, is the early recruitment to a prison career. You should never put a person, a young person, in prison during his teens. A teenager is growing. His relations to the social environment, his relation to the opposite sex, or also to to some of his own sex, all these are very sensitive periods in in a... in the life of a man, they're often male, these people who are in, in staying in prisons. And I think that we destroy the entire life of people when we incarcerate them in an age under 20. And we can also see it the other way. If you have a late incarceration, the possibilities that this person can leave the career is much greater. The earlier you are putting a, a youngster into closed institutions, the m- bigger is the uh, possibility and the risk that he will never leave the career. In the age from perhaps 12, 14, up to 19, we are shaping the part of the population which is staying with, uh, with the criminal justice system to the end of their life. And we have succeeded to some degree in Finland during the last 20, 30 years to bring down that early recruitment. We have today only 10 or 11 boys under 18 in in the prison system or in in a country of 5 million in population, which which is a very, very good result. And you can see it because everyone who is staying with us 
to be a recidivist, he must have been the first timer sometimes. And when you are slowing down the early recruitment, you have also a later second visit. You, the, the, you are also slowing down the pace of recidivism, so to say. And, and this is, uh, I think, the, the most important gain you can have uh, of a policy like this. Along with this attempt to delay the age of first imprisonment, Finland has employed a variety of alternative punishments. During the 1970s, the criminal code was extensively revised, and prison ceased to be the penalty for a variety of nonviolent crimes. We really lowered the level of criminalization in the 70s through legislation, and it was accepted by the parliament without any opposing votes. So, so we, we depenalized. For instance, theft was an ordinary theft was always sentenced by imprisonment before 72, but we introduced fines for theft in 72, and today most of the thefts are, are sentenced by a fine, not in, not in imprisonment. So the depenalizing was one of the ways we did it. And the other one was that I think that through the training in the Faculty of Law in Helsinki, our judges as a group had very liberal attitudes. They didn't believe in imprisonment as a method to combat crime. So we got through the legislation, through the judges, a very different way of selecting people to prisons than we had in, in the 50s or 60s. So now, in, in cases when we are sentencing to imprisonment, uh, most of the sentences are suspended. And the last of these methods we have used during the last years is the community service order, which is a great success in Finland. We for, know for sure that community service orders are taking out more and more of a short time in prisoners from the system. And uh, what is also interesting that many of the employers, those who are taking these to community services, are uh, very happy with these persons they have met in, in, in community service orders. The system is also spreading some kind of understanding. These various reforms have been animated by a philosophy that Koyi Lang says looks back to the Enlightenment when a rational philosophy of punishment was first articulated. Its principles are utilitarian. Punishment is viewed as an evil which may sometimes be necessary, but which should never be extended an inch beyond what this necessity justifies. Koyilang says that he fears these principles are now being eroded in other Western countries, particularly the United States, where politicians now compete in vengefulness towards prisoners and sheriffs callously boast about the wretched conditions in their jails. They forget, he says, that modern institutions of punishment grew out of a long history of limiting vengeance. When the, the kings of, in Europe came into the criminal justice uh, business, they very often took over the power to revenge the crime and to, to settle the conflict and to protect the, the, the offender against uncontrolled revenge. And in a longer perspective, I think that we shouldn't forget that the state has taken over the right to punish just for one reason, to limit the uncontrolled revenge. 
And sometimes when you, you read about victimizations and that kind of thing, the, the theories about victims today, and uh, when the politicians are very eager to tell about how important it is to take care of the victim's position, it is very easily forgotten that the criminal justice system is built upon some kind of a balance between the interests of the state, the victim, and the offender. And you don't get a good criminal justice system by sacrificing one person's right for another. You get a good criminal justice system when you try to balance contradictory interests. You can say it that way. And uh, it is, uh, from that point of view, very, very sad to see how day to day in, in the United States and also in England, those <laughs> responsible for the criminal policy and those who, who are taking care of these as, as in, in, the, in the political process, how ready they are to forget the very, very proud traditions of Benjamin Franklin, Jeff, Thomas Jefferson and so on, the old classical protectors of, of men, how they have destroyed the thinking of those who shaped the, state, the United States. So you can say also that, it, that in the United States and in England today, we are, when we are discussing criminal policy, on a more primitive level than they were 200 years ago. And this is, in, in my opinion, a scandalous situation, uh, which also shows some kind of, of, of de-civilization of this part of, of our society. This de-civilization is expressed in the unbalanced and unlimited emphasis on retribution that Koyi Lang sees emerging in the U.S. Criminals no longer count as persons. They've been, in effect, thrown away. But imagining that there is a class of our fellow citizens that we can safely disregard, he says, is dangerous as well as wrong. We are destroying the basic values behind the solidarity which should be with every state. The people in, in, in a society should have some kind of a solidarity with the system. But if you more or less have to use violence or, or, or very heavy police and army machineries to keep it going, then those who are controlled have no common interest with that society. They can really go against it. So I, I think that, that one reason why we today have to listen to, in my opinion, fairly uncivilized speeches about the, the criminal justice system is that it is rooted in the fear of what they in the last century called the criminal classes. We are, we are shaping criminal classes because we have an, a, a surplus population to which we, we, we haven't given any tasks, any social or positive tasks for the entire society. They are just there to be controlled. The continuing decline in Finland's prison rate makes it a unique case amongst Western countries today. Canada has followed the more common trend in Western Europe, a period of decline followed more recently by a growth surge. 
At the moment, there seem to be powerful forces pushing our policy in both directions. There are demands on the one hand for longer sentences, harsher prisons, and tougher parole conditions. But there are also signs within both federal and provincial governments of serious questioning about whether it makes sense to be sending as many people as we are to prison. Late in 1995, for example, the federal justice minister, Alan Rock, challenged the House Justice Committee to seek alternatives to imprisonment for young offenders. There are huge chunks of money being spent locking up kids who are no threat to us, he said. The government of Quebec has announced that it intends to close prisons and reduce prison places in that province by as much as 13%. Prisons must stop being a dumping ground for people other services don't want to handle, Quebec's public security minister said when he announced the plan. New Brunswick has said that it intends to eliminate 25% of its adult jail space and direct the saving to community-based alternatives. Judges have also expressed skepticism about jails. In March of 1996, in Toronto, Ontario Court Judge David Cole told a group of criminal justice professionals that a surprising number of judges feel that much of the processing and reprocessing of social misfits does very little to prevent or control crime. He cited a dozen recent decisions in which judges had expressed doubts about the usefulness of imprisonment. A reduction in the imprisonment rate has also been promoted by the Sentencing and Corrections Review Group in Ottawa. They warn of rising costs, an overtaxed justice system, and increased violence if Canada does not find alternatives to imprisonment for nonviolent offenders. The group includes the Deputy Ministers of Justice and Solicitors Departments, the head of the National Parole Board, and at the time this program was conceived, the Commissioner of the Correctional Service of Canada, John Edwards. Mr. Edwards is a career civil servant who took over the CSC in 1993. In April of 1996, he resigned in response to criticisms of the CSC by an official inquiry into an incident at the prison for women two years earlier. I spoke with him while the inquiry was still in progress and I believe the remarks he made to me on that occasion retain their validity. He told me that in his view, the main obstacle to reducing imprisonment is a deeply rooted habit of thought. I think it's deep into our culture at the present time that for most people uh, who run into reasonably serious trouble with the law, they should be tossed in jail, and that I think applies to uh, crown prosecutors. Uh, it probably uh, applies even to defense attorneys who say to themselves, well, my client, uh, having had a series of break-ins, uh, the issue is, uh, is it one year or two years? And uh, so people are tending to think in terms of incarceration in certain circumstances as a matter of course. So it, it's not so much that it's the judges as uh, a state of mind that permeates through the criminal justice system. And uh, the kind of thing that I think is important to try and, and, and explore is why has that habit become so entrenched and what can we do about it? And one of the reasons it's become entrenched is that the criminal justice system does not have the time to do the kind of job that many of them would like in the sense of evaluating an offender from the point of view of what will help that offender find uh, a useful life. They don't have time. It's basically a, a rapid-fire, uh, uh, heavy caseload uh, sausage production uh, where cases come in and the quickly, as quickly as they are resolved, the better. 
which often means that uh, there's a plea bargain uh, quickly determined by uh, defense and, uh, and prosecutor, where the defense may say three years, prosecutor say five years, they compromise on four years, go to the judge, judge says fine, and move on to the next case. When uh, a decision may be made on four years that costs uh, the taxpayer an enormous amount of money in terms of incarceration, but they didn't consider that. At the same time, uh, they may have done terrible damage to, to family connections and what have you. When there might have been, uh, if there had been a thorough evaluation uh, of the person, there may have been a more humane and certainly more cost-effective uh, means of ensuring correction, i.e. a solution within the community. Are you skeptical of the, of the value of imprisonment? Yes. I think it's, it's quite helpful to think in terms of the various reasons that are given for putting people uh, in prison. And there are basically four of them. One is the one that I have very deep uh, skepticism about, and that's uh, retribution, vengeance. Uh, but it's a human instinct. Uh, if someone has done something bad to you, to want to punish that person. Uh, I would sooner find uh, an alternative route uh, through something like restorative justice, where you're trying to heal the person who has been offended, or the community that's been offended, as well as find uh, a way of reconciliation with the offender. And that can often be a community service type approach or something of this kind. The second is deterrence. And I'm afraid with most of the offenders that come to at least federal corrections, if you look at their files, deterrence probably doesn't carry much weight. A lot of their offenses are carried out under the influence of drugs or alcohol or something of this kind. A lot of it's impulsive uh, type activity. And I'm not sure that uh, there's much uh, proof of, uh, of deterrence value in putting people in jail. You mean deterrence implies premeditation. That's right. Which doesn't exist. Well, it may exist, but people may not be thinking in, in those terms. If they feel that they have very little hope in life, uh, if they are poorly educated, una unable to get employment, they've got a, a drug habit or what have you, they may feel a compulsion that far overpowers any deterrence uh, that might be in the back of their minds because they know they may get caught, but they don't think they're going to get caught. The, the third is uh, rehabilitation, and on the whole, rehabilitation is probably easier to achieve in the community than in prison. To turn someone from antisocial to prosocial uh, behavior inside a prison is more of a challenge, generally, than outside. Which leaves the fourth reason, which I think is valid, and that is some people have to be incapacitated. If some people are out of control, preying on, uh, on young kids or something of this kind, and there is no immediate evidence that they're going to stop, you may have to put them away for a period of time uh, or forever. I mean, there are some uh, serial killers that uh, are in our jails that probably will never, never get out of our jails and probably should never get out of our jails. But the proportion of people who must be in jail for long periods of time is very, very small in my judgment. So on the whole, we should be looking for uh, solutions that meet the needs of our society without doing terrible damage to, uh, to family relationships uh, or indeed uh, leaving the pain unresolved. If you take uh, someone, you can see it in the newspapers these days, if you take someone who has done something terrible and throw them into jail, even if it's 15 years later, if the word gets out that they're going to be released on parole, the same people who were, who were uh, damaged by the original offenses are immediately up in arms saying, this is terrible, we can't have this person coming out. The truth is, in many of these cases, I believe 
the jailing of someone has not resolved or even come close to resolving the fundamental problem, and that is uh, the need to heal the community for the damage that was done. And putting someone in jail doesn't seem to, to heal. All it does is uh, delay or put on in cold storage uh, the, the problem until the individual is coming out again. So you, you feel we could really radically reduce, there's a scope for a radical reduction oh, yes. in the number of prisoners we keep in Canada, keeping in mind the objective of public safety. That is correct. If we are a small proportion, uh, if our rate of incarceration is a small proportion of the Americans, uh, there are European uh, countries which have a small proportion of what we have. And I believe, uh, in principle, there is no reason why we should have higher rates of incarceration uh, than the Netherlands or, or Finland or anywhere else. Currently, Canada has more than twice as many prisoners per capita as Finland. And an annual growth rate of 4% in the 90s has led to increasingly serious overcrowding in our federal prisons. The system is now 15% over capacity, which means that 30% of the prisoners are sharing a space designed for one. But John Edwards thinks that this overcrowding should be taken as a pressure to find alternatives rather than build more prisons. What we're doing is hopefully accommodating a short-term surge in our prison population. In, in the long run, if that uh, surge were to continue, we would either end up with totally inhumane uh, institutions or we'd be forced into building. I just think that uh, at this moment in our history, the people of Canada and, uh, and the federal government uh, and increasingly provincial governments are aware that building more prisons is not the answer to crime in the country. Crime on the whole is starting to go down. This is not the time to start throwing more and more people in prison. Holding the line on prison expansion in John Edwards' view, buys time for public consideration of alternatives. It also saves us from the criminal justice equivalent of Parkinson's law, in which the number of prisoners tends to expand to fill all available prison spaces. There is a, a vicious circle there, as we've seen in the United States, uh, where uh, the, the building frenzy is going on uh, at an extraordinary pace. We have generally resisted that in Canada. We've said that is not the way to go, to throw more and more people in jail. And as a result, uh, I personally have uh, argued strongly that we should accept a degree of overcrowding rather than build more and more capacity. Once you build, uh, it'll be there for a hell of a long period of time. I think it was France that built uh, uh, 7,000 new cells one summer, and uh, there were 7,000 new offenders uh, in those cells uh, within a few months. So there's no necessary connection between building more and reducing overcrowding. You may, in fact, just get more people uh, coming into the prisons. We're even worried now about the small uh, women's prisons that we're building across the country. Some judges are saying that if they don't have to send an offender away thousands of miles to uh, the prison for women in Kingston, they may be more inclined to give prison terms uh, in, uh, in, in their province. And that worries us, obviously. John Edwards believes that Canada's level of imprisonment could be substantially reduced without at all compromising public safety but he's quite aware of pressures pushing the prison system in the opposite direction. Indeed, there's a certain irony in Mr. Edwards being forced to resign over a question of prisoners' rights when the CSC is also under attack for mollycoddling prisoners and showing excessive regard for their rights. At the time this program was being prepared, several Reform Party MPs were touring federal prisons with a view to producing a report critical of the Correctional Service of Canada. 
Western Report, a magazine sympathetic to reform, says that the party intends to expose the cushy conditions and soothing methods of the jail system. The CSC, says Western Report, views the more than 14,000 offenders in its charge as incarcerated citizens, not convicted criminals. The story presents highlights from a list of what Reform MP Randy White calls absurdities. These include free medical care, conjugal visits, and the right to personal property. These are, by implication, what the magazine later calls criminal coddling practices. What is being attacked, seemingly, is the fundamental axiom of humane prison administration, that the loss of liberty is by itself the supreme punishment, and that nothing further is gained by making prisons harsh and demeaning. As commissioner of the CSC, John Edwards upheld this principle, in spite of the criticisms. One of our uh, best prisons is at a place called William Head uh, on Vancouver Island, and it's jokingly referred to as Club Fed. So oh, we certainly get uh, plenty of that. But people have to decide in their mind why we send people to jail. If we're sending people to jail to teach them uh, how uh, to behave in society and live peaceably with their neighbors, the last thing you need is, is to take kids uh, or adults uh, who've had uh, upbringings uh, that are pretty rough, abusive, uh, and, and what have you, and have learnt that the answer to most things is, is be violent or steal and the rest of it, and then throw them into an environment that is very, very harsh. You, you don't punish people back into good behavior, I, I don't think. I think it is much wiser to use a, more of a carrot approach and try and help them to learn what it means to have good relationships with other people and to start appreciating where other people are coming from. And uh, to the extent possible, we should try and provide inside an environment similar to what we would like them to have outside. So in effect, we're trying to teach people uh, how to live. A lot of these people, if you look at their, their backgrounds, they're, they're so pathetic in, in terms of, of, uh, of backgrounds, badly brought up, uh, poor employment history, low levels of education, uh, heavy uh, uh, use of, uh, of uh, illegal substances or alcohol. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. And what uh, I think we need to do is provide a relatively humane environment and help them, to, indeed, to become uh, humane before they hit the streets again. John Edwards, while he headed the Correctional Service of Canada, spoke for the view that Canada should be carefully reducing imprisonment and finding alternatives. A significant body of opinion agrees with him in the government, in the civil service, and in the criminal justice system. The example of the United States also supports his argument that expanding imprisonment creates a vicious circle. But at the same time, there is powerful opposition from those who are upset about crime and see increased imprisonment as the only adequate response. Support for this view is reinforced by the tendency of mass media to make the public aware of only the most vicious and exceptional crimes, which tends to lead to a distorted impression of who the run-of-the-mill of Canada's prisoners really are. Over the next few years, this question will have to be sorted out. Whether alternatives to imprisonment get a fair hearing will partly depend on whether a space can be preserved for thoughtful consideration of the issue. In Finland, criminal justice reform succeeded because it was insulated from partisan politics. The United States again illustrates the dangers of the opposite course. There, harebrained policies are adopted because no one from the president down dares to be thought soft on crime. 
intensifying the use of imprisonment is always the easiest way to convey the impression of doing something about crime because it's the habitual expected response and requires no explanation. Exploring alternatives will require intellectual courage, social imagination, and political leadership. On Ideas, you've listened to part three of Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. The series originated at a conference on prison growth organized by Norwegian criminologist Niels Christie and held in Oslo in April of 1995. A production assistant, Gail Brownell. Technical operations, Lorne Tulk. Producer, Alison Moss. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 plus GST, or you can get the entire 10-hour series for only $25 plus GST. Send a cheque or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And a free reading list is available at the same address. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.